All right, if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Job. We'll be in Job 4 today. 4 and 5 will be our reading. If you don't have a Bible, we have some blue paperback Bibles on the back table that we'd be glad for you to take with you. We also have uh, Bibles in the rows, in theory, depends on how much they get moved week by week, but in theory, there's at least one Bible in the back of one chair somewhere in the row in front of you if you need one. And if you use that one, uh, you don't have to worry about, like, where is Job and where does it fit? You can just go to page 418. Um, Since everyone else probably has different Bibles, I can't tell you what page uh, to go to. But if you're using one of our chair Bibles, we'll be on page 418. And if you're a guest uh, with us today, let me add my welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here. Trust that you've already been blessed as we have been pouring out our hearts in praise to the Lord and responding to his word in the power of his spirit, standing in awe of this God who is so beyond our comprehension, but condescends to us, comes down to us and saves us by his grace. And we're going to continue to consider him today and how we should respond to him as we continue our series in the book of Job. And so our series in this book uh, is titled Talking to and About God, and that's what we're going to be talking about a lot in these next ones. In the first couple chapters, there's his suffering and response, but there's this really big middle of Job that, that if you're like me, you tend to just like kind of skip over. It's like, well, I, I read it. Okay, good. Praise the Lord. Uh, but the story is really the beginning and the end, and we go, well, God didn't give us those 30-something chapters just for us to pass by them. Uh, they're for us to learn something from, and I think there will be some very real-life application for us today. And so today we'll be considering, we'll read Job 4 and 5, but really we're kind of talking about what happens in Job 4 to 37. And you say, how are you going to cover all that in one week? We're not. We're going to come back and also be talking about Job 4 to 37 next week, and then we'll have like three different sermons on different chapters within Job 4 to 37. So this is kind of the, in many ways, the heart of the book, and it's all about how we talk about God and how we talk to God. So we're focusing today on how we talk about God to other people, especially people who are suffering. And the title of the sermon today is When God Makes Too Much Sense. We talked at the beginning of the series about if you feel like, you know, I never know what to say. It's hard for me to talk about God with other people. Then this series is for you. And if you think, I always know what to say. I've always got the right verse and I'm just ready. Then this series is really for you. Okay. So um, probably we're all in one or two of those categories in one or the other. So this series is for us. And so our text technically will be 4 to 37. The scripture reading will be 4 to 5 to give us a sense of what's going on. But before we read it, just a quick reminder of where we've been so far in this series. Job is introduced at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, and then again in verse 8, as a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. 
Satan, in the intervening verses there, shows up along with the sons of God as they appear before God. And this heavenly scene reveals the test that is proposed by Satan when God asks him, Have you considered my servant Job? And over the next two chapters, Job loses all his wealth, his children, and his health. Remarkably, he responds by worshiping the Lord with an almost unbelievable declaration of faith. And then three friends come to comfort him in his distress, and they sit in silence with him for a whole week. Then as we saw last week in Job 3, Job finally speaks, and when he does, it is not what they expected to hear. And it's not what we would have expected to hear if all we knew about him was the, you know, naked came I into the world, and naked will I leave from it. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we're like, oh yeah, okay, I hope I, can, hope I can respond like that, right? Or in chapter 2, shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not bad, not disaster? And the text affirms in both of those instances that in all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. As you do your own reading through Job, look for words like that. Lips, mouth, open mouth, words. He spoke. You'll see tons of them. They'll just explode off the page at you because that's all that's happening. Is people either talking to God or they're talking about God to each other. That is what is going on here in Job. But when Job speaks, and it's not what they expect to hear, and it's not what we would have expected if we only knew chapters 1 and 2 and 42, he's cursing the day of his birth. He's wishing for death. He's asking, why? 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 And as he ends his cry, he says, I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. And then he just stops. And it's at this point where we are in chapter 4. Eliphaz, one of Job's three would-be comforter friends, can no longer contain himself having heard these words. And then he speaks. So here's Job 4 and 5. This is when Eliphaz speaks to Job in response to his cry of pain. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember, Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. 
It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. I had seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, Nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue. And shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh. And shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field. And the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word, and we ask that you would help us as we consider these words from Eliphaz to Job today, uh, that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd help us to know what to make of them, what to make of you and how you work in the world, and that you would give us wisdom to know how to speak about you to one another, that we would serve one another with words that are true and words that are helpful. And so would you meet with us now? Would you help me to say words that are true and that are helpful? And would you make us a people who walk in your wisdom? Spirit, would you come and help us, lead us, guide us now? In Jesus' name, amen.
If someone is ill, but misdiagnosed, something that generally could be a good medicine could kill them, right? You're familiar with that? (laughs) It's like, this is good, but if they don't need it, you shouldn't give it to them. In many cases, it will actually harm them. It will do more harm than good. Job's friends are a classic example of this kind of malpractice. It's a little tricky reading Job 4 and 5 because there's a lot in there that's true. Right? You hear so much of it and go, yes, amen. I mean, this is what I would do. I would seek the Lord. I would seek God. It's like, that is good advice. Right? And how many times did I hear growing up, you know, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. There it is. It's in the Bible. But who's saying it? And what is God going to say about those words at the end? But so much of it sounds just like Proverbs. And you're exactly right. But they misdiagnose Job's condition and therefore misapply God's word to his, situa- to, to his situation. And Job ends up calling them miserable comforters. And you say, well, that's just what Job thought. He wasn't thinking very clearly, obviously, from Job 3, right? This is a man who's not thinking clearly, and he, he probably needed this kind of correction. But what does God say at the end of the story? He says to all three of the friends, and these are just Eliphaz's first words to Job. What a start, right? God will say to all three of the friends, you have not spoken about me what is right. right. But it was right. But it was wrong. Sometimes even when we have cross-references to other parts of our Bible, when we've got a verse to prove our point, God could end up saying, as he did to these three friends, You didn't talk about me right. You did it wrong. And he ends up having Job pray for them (laughs) so that they could be restored. When they're giving him the prescription for how he can be restored. God says, you are not in the right. And so when Job calls them miserable comforters in Job 16.2, It's not just a man speaking out of his pain. God agrees with Job's opinion. And so the big idea this morning is this. We need wisdom to know how to say true and helpful words about God. We need wisdom to know how to say true and helpful words about God. God, because it is possible to say something that is generically true about God and is absolutely not what someone needs to hear. We can say something that's totally true about God and completely wrong for a specific person in a specific situation. We can try to help and even have scriptural support and end up hurting someone spiritually. If God makes too much sense to us in any given situation, If we hear the the first words and go, oh, I know exactly what that is. I've got it. Here it is. 
If God makes too much sense to us, our view of him may be too simplistic. And I can already uh, feel it. Some of you are thinking, and I tend to think the same way, well, if that is the way it is, then I'll just never say anything to anyone about God. That's the safe way. Then I won't do anything wrong, and I won't hurt the patient, right? If you don't want to hurt patients, just never become a doctor. Or a nurse. But that's not an option, is it? If we went through our lives and never said a word about God because we were afraid of saying the wrong thing, we would communicate all sorts of wrong things about him. He must be spoken of. He must be responded to with worship. His name must be declared among the nations. And we are the ones who are called to speak his word. So this isn't stop using the Bible. Please don't hear that. This isn't stop talking about God. We'll be that church that somehow worships God without ever talking about him to one another. That would be tough. I don't think we ought to try it. We think if I never say anything, I won't mess up. But we can't do that, right? We're commanded to build one another up. Not just generically, but with God's words. We're compelled to exhort one another every day while it's called today so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we must say words about God. We don't get a choice about that. So instead of saying, okay, I just won't talk, we must lean into God's wisdom, recognizing that we don't have it on our own. That we need his word and his spirit because we need wisdom to know how to say true and helpful words about God. Right? Because in one sense, the friends did quite well. They said many true things about God. Almost everything that they say about God, now not what they say about Job, but almost everything they say about God could be cross-referenced with Proverbs. At many points as you read through their speeches, kind of like here in chapter 4 and 5, you know, that's good, that's true, and that lines up with our theology. And it, and it does, because it's true. But remember, Proverbs, as we talked about wisdom at the beginning of the series, is not just about being able to say, I have a verse for that. It's about applying the truth of God to daily life. And as you know from your own life, there's a whole lot of situations in your life where there's not necessarily a specific verse for that. Now, we have enough trouble with the areas of life that we do have specific verses for. <laughs> and so maybe that's a place to start for some. Like, oh, I want the deep things, this wisdom of God. It's like, well, are we obeying what we already know? Are we walking in submission to our king who has given us good words to obey as we trust him and walk with him. So that's the, the start. But then there will be plenty of situations where we don't know exactly what to do. Do we have a conversation with that person or not? Do we respond to what just happened? What's our responsibility? What is our role? Wisdom is learning to apply the truth about God even when there is no particular verse. Proverbs is not meant to be interpreted and applied in a woodenly literal way. Let me give you 
a fairly well-known example. This is Proverbs 26, 4, and it'll be on the screen. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. I'm like, okay, I am never going to do that. When I see someone who's a fool and he's speaking foolishness, I've got a verse for it. I don't speak to him. Right? And you guys are like, I know this is a trick. It is. So that's a good one, right? We'll make sure never to do that. But wait, there's another verse in Proverbs. Look at this one. Answer a fool according to his folly. You see the the one difference in the first half of that verse? Just the not. You're like, wait a minute. Lest he be wise in his own eyes. So there's two different problems, right? You can become like the fool if you answer him according to his folly. But if you don't, then he'll just go on thinking that he is wise. And we didn't actually have to look very far to find this verse. What's the reference? Proverbs 26, 5. These are back-to-back verses. So Solomon obviously messed up. Obviously didn't, (laughs) just in case. Right? So is Proverbs like, I found my verse, now I know exactly what to do. It's learning to apply God's word to the situation. Because he gives here the exact opposite advice. They are right next to each other. So which one is it? Which one is it that God really wants me to do? The correct answer must be sometimes answer a fool according to his folly. And sometimes don't. And we need wisdom to know whether they're going to go on being wise in their own eyes. Or to know whether we're going to be dragged in and become a fool like them. So how do we know? You know, give me the five scenarios where it's verse 4, and give me the five scenarios where it's verse 5. I can't do that. We don't know which one. We need wisdom, because without wisdom, our words end up being useless. Just two verses later, Proverbs 26, 7 says this, like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. And essentially, Job's friends end up proving themselves to be fools while they are trying to speak for God. There are many true things that they say, but they're useless. They're worthless. In some ways, they're worse than useless because they end up harming the very friend they're trying to help. So what was wrong with the friend's perspective. They were too simplistic in their understanding of how God runs his world. And based on that simplistic and misguided understanding, they were overconfident in their completely wrong assessment of Job. But again, they they say things that are true, right? Is it true that God blesses the righteous and judges the wicked? Is that true? Everyone's like, I don't, I don't want to give any answers. Yes. Yes. Now, does that blessing always look like what we expect it to? Does it look like being healthy and strong and rich? Like if it did, obviously we are not trusting the Lord enough. 
or maybe he works on another principle than just a simple, immediate principle of retribution. But that's their major premise. God blesses the righteous and judges the wicked. God, who created the world, who always does what is right. There's going to be lots of discussion about God's justice. Does he do what is right? And the answer is yes. God always does what is right. That is true. He's the one who will reward the innocent and destroy those who do wrong. To do otherwise would be unjust. That's true, generally speaking, and that's the thought world in which they live. That's their baseline assumption, that God works on this foundational principle of retribution. Everyone gets what they deserve, and God will make sure of it. That's the point that Eliphaz is making in verses 7 through 10, right? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? That's what's going on, right? Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, they're the ones who reap iniquity and trouble. And so, Job, you're reaping iniquity and trouble. This is bad. So, right? It's where he ends up with his prescription, right? It's for me. I'd seek God. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. And you're like, that is good advice. And we shouldn't. And we have Hebrews 12 for that, right? We, we should not despise the Lord's discipline because he disciplines every son that he loves. Everyone who's really his child will be disciplined by him. So that's true, but it's not for Job because that is not what's happening, right? We already know that. The friends don't know it though. And they can't imagine that that could be true. If someone is in trouble, it's because they've done something worthy of being in trouble. And so then here's their next thought. No human being can be in the right before God, right? We heard Eliphaz say that too. And ultimately, that is true. Any of us want to try to stand before God and say that we've been good enough, you know, just even in the last 24 hours to merit his favor? <laughs> Any volunteers? Right? It's like, that's not something any of us should want to sign up for because every single one of us would fail the test. No one can be pure before his maker. True or false? True, Right? And for them, it's not even a trick question. And there's only one clear answer. And they're right. It's true. No one can be in the right before God. And that's what Eliphaz is saying in verses 17 to 21 of chapter 4. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? It's like, no. No. We can't. And this isn't the only place where the Bible says that, right? Think of Romans 3, 10 through 12, which itself is quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, saying this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Or try Psalm 130 and verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the correct answer is no one. If he was keeping track of what we've done wrong, none of us would pass the test. And so then here's how it all fits together for them. If God blesses the righteous and judges the wicked, if no one can be in the right before God, and if Job is being attacked by God, and that's how Job is feeling about this, and they would agree by what they can observe, 
then Job must be guilty of some sin deserving of the treatment he is receiving from God. And throughout these three speech cycles in Job, where Eliphaz will speak, and then Job responds, and then Bildad will speak, and then Job responds, and then Zophar will speak, and Job responds. We have two complete cycles like that, and then the third one gets cut off because they just can't even talk to each other anymore. Then Elihu pops in for 32 to 37 to speak of God's majesty and justice in preparation for when Yahweh, when God himself, will come down and speak with Job. But in each one, they are trying with increasing intensity to convince Job that he must repent, he must turn, that blessing comes on the other side of confession, and you're like, all those things are are true, but it's not what's going on. And so throughout these three speech cycles, each of the friends will take up this basic argument. And with that airtight argument in place, that Job is obviously being punished by God for something because God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked, and that no one can be in the right before God, so Job should repent. They prescribe Job's remedy, which is exactly that, repentance. Since he sinned, he must seek God. If he does, he'll be welcomed by God and Restored. We even saw that right at the end of chapter 5. I mean, think about how heartless it is for Eliphaz to say these things, right? In the beginning of verse 5, when he's speaking about a fool, says his children, in verse 4, his children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. And there's no one to deliver them. What happened to Job's children? They were crushed. He says, this is what happens to the fool. His children will be crushed. But then hear how empty the promises would feel to Job at the end of chapter 5. He's saying that everything's going to work together, right? God's going to deliver you. Blessed is one whom the Lord reproves. He wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He'll deliver you. In famine, he'll redeem you from death. In war, from the power of the sword. You'll be hidden from the lash of the tongue, which is ironic because that's exactly what's happening to him now. And shall not fear destruction when it comes. But Job has just said, the thing that I feared has come upon me. At destruction and famine, you'll laugh. It's like I'm pretty sure Job's not laughing. Because everything's going to work together. And then verse 24. Hear these words, thinking of Job. You shall know that your tent is at peace. And you shall inspect your fold where your flocks are. And miss nothing. How much of Job's flock is missing? All of it. He finds nothing. This is all, but if you repent, if you give, you know, submit to the Lord here. Just seek God. And this is how it will turn out. Next, even worse, you shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. This is a man who's just lost all 10 of his children. It's like, if you just repent, you'll have lots of kids. You'll be blessed. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. And then just to kind of like put the bow on it, right? Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Here, 
and know it for your good. No wonder Job says, oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. And he's like, this, this, that ain't it. <laughs> this is not what we're doing. I can't do this. And so they've given him, Eliphaz has spoken kind of for the friends, right off the bat, this is, this is what you need. Here's what's wrong. Here's your prescription. We're all set. Just like that nurse or doctor who hears, I have a pain in my side. And it's like, I know exactly what to do about that. Like, no other questions. Just, I know what to give you. You will be fine. And much to their exasperation, because they're so wise, they're telling him what's true and that he needs, what he needs to know for his good, Job continually asserts his innocence. And then instead of listening to Job, they double down. And Job will end up saying some troubling things as you're reading through Job. He will say some troubling things about God and about whether God is really just and whether the wicked really do get what they deserve. And then the friends are even more convinced of their position. See, there there you go. You're proving it right now. They'll defend God's justice. Here's a sample from Job 8, verses 3 and 4. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? And again, think of who they're talking to. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Then they'll grow even stronger in their assertions of Job's wickedness. They've already said he's like a fool and he's a turn around. But Job 15, 4 to 6. But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Then they'll remind Job that he can't understand the deep things about how God's work, God works. But apparently, you know, they can because they're not suffering. Job 11, 7 to 9. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Of course, God's going to come later and say, no, you can't. It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol or the grave. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. They'll even tell him that what he has gotten from God is actually less than what he deserves. In that same chapter, just the verses right before, Job 11, 5 and 6. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Like, thanks for that, Zophar. The friends end up saying many true things about God, but many wrong things about Job and his situation because they assume that God always works a very particular way and always works on their timeline. Right? Because, again, while it's generally true that the Lord blesses the righteous and that the wicked will come to ruin, we don't see it happen immediately. But they think that it will. They completely miss the mark in their attempted application to Job's situation. God does not run the world on a simple principle of retribution, rewarding the good and punishing the evil, at least not 
right away. And of course, if that's really what he did, none of us are good. (laughs) We would all receive his punishment. But not all suffering is a direct result of a particular sin. I mean, from the prologue, from those first two chapters of Job, we actually know that he's suffering because of his innocence and because of how he fears the Lord. And so by speaking without accurate understanding of the situation, due to their simplistic understanding of God's ways, these well-intentioned friends become miserable comforters. They made sense of the situation by making God fit in their simplistic box. So what do we do with this? How do we not be like the friends? And again, we can't just say, I just won't say anything. I'll just never enter in with anyone's suffering. Suffering's going to come close to you if it hasn't yet, and it will be time to talk. It will be time to talk to God, and it will be time to talk about God. So how do we not be like the friends? We need wisdom to know how to say true and helpful words about God. So let's consider that wisdom. First, the wisdom we need is Jesus. The wisdom we need is Jesus. We have no wisdom worth having without him. Paul calls Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians one twenty four. A few verses later, verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1, Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And his wisdom is set in contrast here in 1 Corinthians 1 to the wisdom of the world. And in a way, the wisdom of Job's friends. The wisdom of God, which looks like foolishness to the world, was displayed most clearly when Jesus hung on the cross, dying in the place of sinners. That's not what God's blessing looks like. That's not what God's wonderful plan for someone's life looks like, naked on a cross in shame. Surely God is against him. God can't be for him. And yet that was exactly God's plan because through his suffering, many were brought to glory. We live because he died in our place. This is the wisdom of God because what's the Bible all about? Where is it all pointing to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith? Hebrews 12:2. We have no hope of standing before God apart from him. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve judgment much worse than the suffering that Job experienced. But in God's wisdom and in his love, he sent his son at just the right time to pay for our sins by taking the punishment that we deserve. But he didn't stay dead. And this is Aslan's deep magic from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, that when the innocent suffers in the place of the guilty, it's reversed. And on that third day, Jesus rose from the dead, showing his power over sin, death, Satan, and hell. And even now, anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in him will have life with him, both now and forever. Whatever wisdom we think we need in this world, 
for having the right job, for saving enough money, for having good kids that obey, whatever wisdom we think we need, the wisdom we need is Jesus. A wisdom the world still cannot comprehend and cannot understand. But it's the wisdom that we need. He is the wisdom that we need. And having him, how do we walk with him? How do we walk in wisdom? Wisdom comes through the fear of the Lord. Wisdom comes through the fear of the Lord. This is a major theme in Proverbs, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Job's friends could talk about God all day. They're a little like Steve Rogers in a fight, right? I could do this all day. But they didn't really know God, not like Job did, and not like we can now having Christ. The fear of the Lord is living the way that Job did, properly reverencing God, turning away from evil, looking to God for every good thing, and providing physically and spiritually for everyone in our care. That was Job's testimony. But that wisdom doesn't come naturally. It must be sought. Consider these words from Proverbs 2, verses 1 to 5. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Do you hear that? Receive the words. Treasure up my commandments. Making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Wisdom comes through the fear of the Lord and it must be sought. Wisdom also comes through practice. As we pursue it, particularly in God's word, wisdom comes through practice. The author of the letter to the Hebrews the end of Hebrews 5. He wants us to be skilled in the word of righteousness. He describes the mature as those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is speaking of wisdom because he could have just said, obey the commandments. Do the things you're supposed to do. Don't do the things you're not. And that's true, but it's not all, because as you know in your day-to-day life, there are so many situations where it's not just, well, here's, here's the specific command, here's what I'm supposed to do, or here's what I'm not supposed to do. We won't always have a verse to know what to do in every situation, and so we need to exercise our wisdom muscles so they're ready. We need to actively be pursuing wisdom day by day in the little decisions that don't seem that significant, that we think we can do apart from God somehow. We need to exercise every day so that we're fit, so that we're ready when the bigger moments come. But even those bigger moments, we can't get ourselves ready for. So next, wisdom comes through prayer. If we lack wisdom, we can ask God, who will give us all the wisdom we need, and he'll never give us a hard time about it. That's the point of James 1.5. We can ask him, and he'll give generously. He'll never run out. 
He never gets tired of us coming to him and asking for wisdom, asking for help. See, the friends claimed to speak for God, but they didn't get their wisdom from him. Paul, in Ephesians and in Colossians, prays for the churches to be filled with wisdom so that they can know God's love for them and live according to his wisdom in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. So wisdom comes through prayer. And you think, well, I'm pretty good at this. I've been reading my Bible a long time, been exercising those wisdom muscles. I'm ready. Here's a big thing. I've got the answer. Wisdom comes through prayer. And then wisdom comes, finally, through patient listening. Christians, as we know from James 1.19, should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Many times we miss wisdom by speaking too soon, especially if we know our Bible pretty well, right? We hear the first thing that's kind of like, ooh, I know a verse for that. I was like, well, did you let them finish the sentence? Or let them finish their story. It's good for us to listen, not just say the first thing, even a good thing that comes to mind. Proverbs 18, 13 helps us in that regard. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And really what we're exploring here is the folly of Job's friends. This is what the friends failed to do. They assumed they knew what was going on and went ahead with the wrong prescription on the basis of their faulty diagnosis, and they gravely injured the patient. The wisdom we need is Jesus. Wisdom comes through the fear of the Lord, through practice, through prayer, and through patient listening. We need wisdom to know how to say true and helpful words about God. We can't back off and say, I won't participate. But we also can't be afraid, right? So my goal, as much as it might seem like this is pretty much what you're doing, though, my goal is not to breed uncertainty regarding God and what he has revealed about himself and his word. His word is sure, and it is true. And so let's not be scared into silence. But I firmly believe the book of Job is designed to give some pause, to slow us down a little bit if we are would-be comforters. See, Job's friends, they were so sure of themselves. They were sure that Job had sinned. They were sure they were speaking for God. But what does God say about them at the end? You have not spoken about me what is right. Their wisdom ultimately, as much as they talked about God, proved to be a wisdom from below. But James three seventeen and 18 says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. May God grant us the spirit of wisdom so that we may say true and helpful words about him to one another and to a watching world. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you have not left us alone, but you have given us your spirit. And so would you help us to pursue you, to trust Jesus, to trust in your wisdom, 
that goes against all the wisdom we tend to know intuitively, that if we just try harder, we can make it. Let us hear your word saying, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and you'll find rest. So let us embrace your wisdom and embracing it. Let us pursue you. Let us fear you. Let us come to you in prayer. Let us patiently listen to one another. And would you, by your spirit, according to your word, give us words to say that will be true, it will be what you have really said, and that will be the right words, the fit words to build up one another in love as we seek to live for you all our days. Would you help us? We need it. In Jesus' name, amen.